0: Friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan coleman Lamb, and I'm going to be solo today, but joined by the really important scholar of football, Tom Oates, uh, associate professor at the University of Iowa. And what we're going to do today in this conversation is Tom and I are going to try to um, walk you through... Where football fits in this sort of conjunctural moment in the United States, the cultural and political economic significance of the sport, and how the kind of questions that Tom posed in his really important 2017 book, Football and Manliness, how those questions might be answered the same or differently today in 2024. We record this episode on Monday immediately following the Super Bowl and it should be released shortly thereafter. So um, we're hoping that people still have football on their minds as they listen to this. But given that this is an episode about football and conjuncture, I want to make uh, a really clear statement about one of the conjunctural elements that must be really at front of mind when thinking about um, Football and politics today, and that is the fact that during the Super Bowl, um, Israel chose to bomb the Rafa refugee camp in the south of the Gaza Strip, the camp where 1.4 million people have been forcibly moved by the Israeli government, and with no other place to turn, those people were then subject overnight, overnight in North America, to bombing during the Super Bowl um, because the Super Bowl served as a kind of spectacular distraction from the horrific violence the genocidal violence that Israel has continued to perpetuate perpetrate against Gazans I think we have to understand football as connected to a broader military industrial complex project here and and To understand that violence that is normalized and naturalized through football helps enable conditions for the normalization and naturalization of horrific genocidal violence as well. And that these two things need to be understood alongside each other. And indeed, the fact that we as North Americans can celebrate this kind of excessive spectacle that is the super bowl and look away from the horrific violence occurring in gaza that is part of this story too and we have to acknowledge that and hold those two things together now with that said i do want to turn it to the conversation i had with tom oates um before I do, just a reminder, please follow the show on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Follow us on Blue Sky. Please, please, please share our episodes. It's really the only way we can kind of get engagement these days. Um, please subscribe to the show. We'd very much also appreciate it if you would rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting venues. Thanks so much. Tom Oates is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Iowa, where he holds a joint appointment with the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. He is the author of the 2017 book Football and Manliness, an unauthorized feminist account of the NFL with the University of Illinois Press, and is co-editor with our friend Zach Furness of The NFL, Critical and Cultural Perspectives course, he's also the author of countless other vital scholarly interventions in academic journals, which I'm sure will also form part of the foundation of our conversation. Tom, thanks so much for joining us me today. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, we have a great deal to get through. Uh, yesterday was the Super Bowl. And um, what I want to do in this conversation is kind of think about football in a much broader sense. Um, so we're not going to unpack or, or or relitigate the Super Bowl. I didn't even watch the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> but um, we are going to talk about why the Super Bowl, in a sense, matters. So let me start mm-hmm. with this. In- in your 2017 book, Football and Manliness, you ask some very provocative questions that I think will really help frame our conversation today in terms of allowing us to appraise the state of professional football. So I want to pose actually those same questions to you now, some seven years later that you asked at that time. The answers may be the same. They may have changed. But either way, I'm really fascinated to hear what you think. So let me start with this. In the prologue to the book, you write, these are troubling times. To navigate them, we must confront and contest the most dehumanizing aspects of our cultural politics. This requires careful thinking about how, where, and under what circumstances the particular formations of the present gained their hegemony, and how they might be challenged. Quote. In other words, you're engaged in a kind of conjunctural analysis of football. How football as a form of popular culture participates in the production of common sense within a particular political economic regime. Now, again, you wrote these words shortly after Trump's ascent to the presidency. I would suggest that despite all the tumult we have seen since COVID, protests against racial injustice, January 6th, and so on... This analysis still applies. We continue to be in a moment defined by a global rise of fascism, even as neoliberalism clings to its hegemonic position. And now the military-industrial complex is again asserting its authority, trying to produce consent for genocide and more Islamophobic warfare. Would you agree with that appraisal? And more importantly, what is the role of football and the NFL in this conjunctural landscape?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um because actually, when I wrote those words, uh, the book went to press actually before i think before Trump was even confirmed as the nominee, but it was kind of looking like it was moving in that direction and right. uh, <laughs> and so that was sort of the last word I had on it at that point, and so much changed so fast um, in the intervening years that um, it really is time for a reappraisal, I think, um for example the, you know, you mentioned neoliberalism clinging to its hegemonic position. I think that that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, I don't think that its position is as unchallenged or, um, central as it once was. Uh, and that's in, in relation to all kinds of other changes in the racial, gendered, sexual aspects of the, of the cultural and political landscape um and this sort of real um conscious attempt to leverage some of these issues in uh ways to gain electoral advantage i mean you know that's not that's not completely new but the uh sort of open way in which it's been pursued is has really been kind of eye opening and and to me it seems there's something new about that. There's something new about the way in which um, the sort of uh, war of position, as Gramsci would have put it, is is being waged by power players with such openness. <laughs> I mean, Christopher Rufo. Well, you know, he'll is one of these guys behind the um, critical race theory panic. Um, you know, he like goes on. Twitter X, I guess it's called now. We can still call it Twitter
0: here. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Great.
1: Great. He goes on Twitter and, um, uh, you know, explains something, uh, explains exactly what he's planning to do, exactly how he plans to manipulate the media. Um, and, uh, to me, that's sort of a strange move, but (laughs) does not seem to blunt the effectiveness of what he and others are up to. So, um, but football, what's the role of football in all of this? I mean, football's role is still, I think, undeniably central. Um, you know, there, there have been ratings records set this year in the United States. Uh, a lot of that is due to the fact that Nielsen has only started measuring out of home viewership. So uh, it's hard to know exactly whether those numbers are really surging in the way that, you know, the reporting of them. Makes it appear, um, but you know the the Super Bowl was a uh, was, was undoubtedly going to draw. I don't I haven't seen the ratings yet, but undoubtedly a hundred million people in the United States watched it, and probably way more than that. Um, and so. You know, and and the conversation around Taylor Swift <laughs> um, and and the Super Bowl uh, captured the attention of probably you know many many people who don't follow the sport at all, and maybe weren't going to watch the Super Bowl, and maybe a lot of people made decisions not to watch the Super Bowl based on um, their dislike of this whole Taylor Swift narrative. So, um, I think that it is central in a way that is still really undeniable, even though. The political landscape has has changed. I wouldn't say it's transformed. It's not completely different, but it is um, it's different enough that we need to account for those differences. And um, I think that that's a lot of the analytical analytical work that I've sort of been up to in the years since. So.
0: Yeah, no. And I mean, it was pretty noteworthy that, that Trump himself, like, really tried to very consciously seize upon football as a, as a kind of, I don't know, mechanism for engendering his own, you know, popularity or, or consent to his position. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had, he, w- he wanted to weigh in on, during the, mm-hmm. the COVID era on whether the Big Ten, I believe, should return to action, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. That was like even emerging around the, the debate. That he took, that's what it was. He took credit for it. Exactly. Which I think, is, speaks volumes. And then last night, Biden had some kind of really, really bizarre, uh, tweet himself in which he was like, um, seeming like to, to, to take credit for like the greatness of America during the game or something like that. Um, meanwhile, this was like literally quite as Israel was bombing refugee camps Mm -hmm. in, in Gaza. Right. And, and, and Mm -hmm. clearly the Super Bowl's sort of spectacular nature in that was, was Mm -hmm. evident. Um, so yeah, I mean it's really it's really very obvious that these political figures see football as important.
1: Yeah, yeah and that's been true for a long time. But um, what's new, as you note, know, is the the really explicit way in which it's been leveraged. And that I, I did write a little bit about that in uh, in the book because Trump was already doing that on the campaign trail in 2016. But of course it. <laughs> he really doubled down on that strategy uh, in the years that followed and uh, really politicized um, the football landscape in an explicit and partisan way that I think was different from what had come before and is still shaping how people engage with it.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, like literally, he he waged war against Colin Kaepernick, basically, directly, right? Um, And and that was very public. So the, the fact that Kaepernick jerseys were burned in the street... Yeah. That wasn't just about people's reaction to Kaepernick. That was about how he had been weaponized by Trump and became a symbol for this sort of MAGA moment. Um, yeah. It really played out on football fields. Absolutely. Yeah. And now we it should mention, too. To- you oh, know, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Oh, sorry. So the, um, I just wanted to mention, too, that uh, moment. I can't remember now. the year is escaping me. I, I think it was 2020. Um uh, in might have been 2019, in which uh, he had come out and uh, criticized players for kneeling um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, so, a number of you know, I mean, uh, across the NFL teams agree that they were going to show solidarity and um, make some gesture. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, like other. Uh, scholars interested in sport your antenna were way up when that was happening i mean that was just such a such a moment it really felt like a really felt like something really important was happening with regards to sport and politics that is not unprecedented but is um uh kind of a new phase it seems like so
0: no absolutely absolutely well just to tease that out even further in the introduction to your book pregame you asked What does the NFL stand for in contemporary U.S. media culture? How have the corporate-produced meanings of the league shifted to make the game meaningful and compelling to its millions of fans in a purportedly post-feminist and post-racial era? Hmm. Now, how would you answer those questions today? Because I feel like even the terms post-feminist and post-racial read completely differently today.
1: Totally. Yeah. um, Yeah, I, I don't think I... I'm sure there are people who continue to define the current era as post-racial and post-feminist. To be clear, those that that was my description. That hence there are quotation marks around those terms. Yes.
0: Sorry, yes. Uh, you can't see that when I'm reading it. Good yeah. point. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but even today, I feel like the way in which those terms get deployed has changed a lot, um, and they don't get deployed in the same way. Or, um uh they're contested in different ways they're transformed in in these new in these new senses now too so i agree i think that um that terminology is it's just so different now that points to the fact that the sort of the broader political landscape in which football is situated is uh has changed really significantly um just from 2017 to now, and this will no doubt continue to change. I mean, the change is always happening uh, in politics and culture, of course, but its I think what's unusual about this period is how visible it is and how um, the jockeying for a kind of new take on um, culture with sports at its center um, has just been unavoidable. I mean, you don't have to be a scholar to notice these things. It's just, it's right out there in the open. Um, the thing that I think has really attracted my attention recently about the corporate produced meetings of the league has been the way that the league has embraced gambling. And that I think, you know, the, yeah. the most recent Super Bowl, the one yesterday, uh, held in Las Vegas, that's the kind of event that, I mean, it, you know, holding the Super Bowl in Las Vegas t- even 20 years ago, that would have been a bonkers idea. I mean, the league has been staunchly opposed to gam- sports gambling for uh, for decades. It was, There was a major scandal in the early 1960s involving two of the league's big stars um, that was dealt with very swiftly and very firmly by... Then Commissioner Pete Rozelle, he suspended the two players for a season. Uh, he extracted an apology from each of them. It was Paul Hornig from um, the Green Bay Packers and Alex Karras of the Detroit Lions. And Hornig was much more eager to sort of cooperate than Karras was. But they, but they both ultimately were reinstated. Um, but you know, the the law that was overturned by the Supreme Court in twenty. 20- um, 18 was lobbied for by uh, then Commissioner uh, Paul Tagliabue, um, who went before Congress and talked about the real important way in which um, football and all pro sports really had to hold the line on sports betting to protect the integrity of these games. And then once that Supreme Court ruling comes in in 2018 uh it was like very quickly the NFL realized like oh this is an opportunity to to make a lot of money here and uh they really dived in um and that was amazing to me i mean the 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 Vegas Super Bowl was announced even before that 2018 um or it wasn't the Vegas Super Bowl it was the uh the move of the of the raiders um to vegas uh was announced in before the supreme court weighed in and left the question of sports gambling to the States. And um, it was uh, even at that press conference, Roger Goodell noted that, you know, the league was staunchly opposed to sports gambling. And then barely a year later, they're starting to pursue partnerships with sports books. And now they have partnerships with seven different sports books. They're probably raking in upwards of a billion dollars in licensing fees, not to mention the, you know, um, the audiences that that pulls in. So, you know, if if anyone listening was at a Super Bowl party and maybe played squares or placed a little prop bet with friends um on some aspect of the game you'll be aware that even if you're a casual fan and don't really care about the outcome of the game you're much more likely to pay close attention if you have a wager on it the league knows this too uh and they know that you know that's good for their media partners which is ultimately good for the league when it comes to negotiating those contracts they've really leaned into that in a way that kind of surprised me, um, and certainly disappoints me, but, um, you know, I guess I, I, I probably shouldn't be so surprised given the fact that, you know, they, the league's, uh, ambitions for growth are so, um, are so pronounced. Uh, it was, I think it was in tw- 2007 that Pete, or no, it's 2010. Pete Rosell announced that the league's goal was to, um, have, 25 billion dollars of profit by 2027 um and that seemed like uh a you know a pie in the sky figure but as we get closer to that year it looks possible that the nfl might actually do that and that is you know i guess a kind of testament to the relentless way in which they pursue revenue but um it comes at a really high human cost, you know, for the players, but also I think now with gambling, for a lot of fans who are um, struggling with gambling addiction, uh, the access for minors is really, really a problem. So, uh, and not to mention, you know, I teach at a Big Ten university, and there's advertising for sports books all over the programming uh, for these college sports, and then you know, college athletes get involved in uh they're treated in a very different way um that's just a it's a it's an interesting and uh it's an interesting leap that these that both college and pro football have taken and i think that the ramifications are going to play out for a very long time
0: Not in a great way. Not at all. No, the gambling point—it's a great point because, as you say, like there's so many layers. Honestly, to the harm that is caused by the gambling, we have the ways in which fans, as you say, through gambling addiction and so forth, experience this harm. And then, because of their invest, their their so material investments in the outcomes of these games, they also reflect back their, you know, like their passion about the outcome at players Mm -hmm. in very abusive ways through things like social Mm -hmm. media. So there becomes like a way more abuse directed towards the players, the stakes for the players in that sense become higher. And you said, you said it about Iowa. I mean, I I wanted to say this when you started to bring up gambling, literally college athletes Mm -hmm. at Iowa have been arrested for their participation in gambling. We also have subsequently learned, this was barely reported upon that they were entirely set up, right? Like the the, the conditions under which those investigations (laughs) were conducted were entirely illegal. Um, but, like, to me, it's what's so disgusting about it is like these univer- universities and the NCAA and so forth have partnered with gambling, right? They've made a choice mm-hmm. to extract value from gambling. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, their own players are going to be just as susceptible to this as anyone else. Right. I mean, you've you've opened the door to it. But then again, we act like the athletes are the villains here when, in fact, it's our institutions that are the villains. Like The the villain of this story is trying to extract more value in ways that cause harm everywhere. Um, So, yeah, I think that's been an under discussed story, especially at the college level. Uh, It's tragic to me that these athletes were involved.
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's a way in which the you know college sports, the NCAA, and the NFL, by coming down on these athletes, are really kind of protecting the interests of gamblers as well. I mean, like one of the way, you know, one of the one of the things they want to um, banish is any thought that the players might not be engaged in a pure pursuit of victory, Right. right? Because that messes everything up. So, um, uh, it's, it's not doing a lot for the athletes, uh, and it's, it's, um, kind of protecting the interests of gamblers, which is an interesting choice.
0: Yeah. It is interesting choice. yeah, a very generous way to put it. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Well, what you were doing before, which was great, and I want to ask for more of it. Is you you provide a really rich historical perspective on how we should understand football. And, and this question I'm about to ask is impossible. I know. So before I even okay. say state the question, it's really not a question you almost can answer. But to the best of your ability, can you? walk us briefly through the history of football and the ways in which it has been imbricated in the development of American ideas about gender mm-hmm. and race in response mm-hmm. to political economic forces. Now you can see why I'm, this is such mm-hmm. an immense question, <laughs> um, but just give us a sense. So I think, cause I think it'll help us that when we return to kind of this contemporary moment, people that can kind of situate it for listeners, like how yeah. these developments have evolved.
1: Yeah. So uh, football, gridiron football, just to, keep it um is going to be complicated a little bit because football rugby and what we call soccer and most of the rest of the world calls football but um those three games all emerge from the same core game um well well, or sort of set of games i guess so we get three codes that emerge from those from those games and um The gridiron football code, you know, the first gridiron game is played in 1869. That's usually where it's traced to a game between Princeton and Rutgers. Um, But that game didn't look anything like what we would recognize as gridiron football. There was no line of scrimmage that that would be created later. Um, The play was more fluid, more like rugby, but uh, players were kicking the ball. Um, as it was on the ground as well, as in soccer, So it took a long time to evolve, right? And it was a messy process. And that's sort of important to understand. But it was made a lot less messy by the fact that there was sort of one figure in particular who took a really leading role in not just sort of shaping uh, American football, but also promoting it. Um, and that was Walter Camp, who um, is the first a student and then uh, a kind of student coach and then uh, the coach at Yale University, which is uh, one of the early powerhouses, believe it or not, of college football back in the um, 1800s. So what um, Walter Camp is very interested in is sort of defining this American code from these competing British codes. Um, And one of the ways that, he seeks to do this is to create a line of scrimmage, um, which, you know, if you've watched rugby, you know, that there's a sort of s- something kind of similar, a scrum, there's such a thing as offside in, and, and, in soccer as well, but also in rugby. Um, but players don't line up, um, on opposite sides of the ball. Um, and then play begins when the ball moves. That is a, um, <clears throat> that's an American, um, Invention uh, in the American code, so and that and that is um, one of Walter Camp's many in innovations in the game. He wanted to make the game shaped to what he thought the American character was and could be. So he wanted to not just reflect the what he thought um, uh, athletics could reflect about the American character. He also wanted to shape it. Um, And in particular, he thought he looked around um, in the 1880s and 1870s and sees this changing cultural and economic landscape, especially for the people who are attending Yale. Um, These are elites. This is, you know, I mean, people who attend Yale today are pretty elite, but the um, but especially especially then (laughs) this is before the GI Bill only a handful of people, you know, um, went to college compared to today at all. So, um, these are the people who are going to be sort of corporate managers, lawyers, you know, uh, uh, you know, municipal leaders, uh, maybe even federal and state leaders. So he's interested in creating a game that will serve the, the goals of, uh, Yale to produce sort of men who will be leaders right in various fields uh, and he thinks that football is perfectly suited for this, especially after he gets his hands on the rules and and changes things a little bit to to shape it in this direction. So one of the things that he's really fascinated about is that you know life is economic life is starting to consolidate and change urbanization is well underway, and a lot of sort of larger, companies are beginning to launch with, you know, really complicated bureaucracies in which you have people responsible for different aspects of the com- of the company's work, but they all have to kind of coordinate in order to make the whole company run well. Um, Walter Camp sees a really uh, interesting parallel in football, right? He thinks that football can also teach these lessons about cooperation, about having a very particular kind of task that you perform excellently and in coordination with others, and that that leads you to success. And the other the other advantage of football is that it's physical, and the fact that it is, uh, you know, some, somewhat aligned with what Theodore Roosevelt would later call the uh, the strenuous life, right? This idea that um, uh, testing yourself physically was a really important sort of a uh, rite of passage for young men, especially young men who are going to be leaders uh, in one way or another, as Walter Camp certainly thought his own players would be. So right from the beginning, football is imbued with this. Uh, it's not a neutral game that people are just playing for fun. It's being shaped literally by one person's ideas, what these ideas resonate with lots of different people about what the uh, changes in society mean and how best to meet them and who should be meeting them. And of course, I, I don't, I, I should probably mention, although I maybe don't need to that, uh, Yale was all men, all men at this time and, and would be until, you know, the very early 1970s. Um, and uh, was uh, all white at this time as well. So this sort of leadership class and the sort of group of people that Walter Camp imagines playing football are people like himself, people who attend Yale and other elite institutions on the East Coast. Um, so that's sort of you know baked in right from the very beginning of the game. And there's lots and lots of uh, I mean, it, it, as you say, there's. This Is a whole at least a semester <laughs> worth of yes. content to answer that question. Um, but I uh but I think you know just starting right there, we can see that it's uh it w- w- when people want to separate sports from uh politics and cultural politics, you know, they're, they're really deceiving themselves in some cases and certainly in the case of gridiron football because the the founder and promoter of football really was very interested in those questions and so you can't really understand football without understanding um what motivated camp to develop the game in the ways he did and promote the games in the way he did he was the innovator of the all-american team Um, and he would pick players who were not necessarily, I mean, they were always outstanding talents, but they were not necessarily the greatest players in each of the positions. They had to also for camp to make his all American team represent the right kinds of values. And of course, that's a very, uh, subjective way of, of thinking about things. And and that allows him to honor and highlight. Uh, players in a very didactic way, a way that um, sort of teaches a lesson to young people, especially young men who might be looking up to these people. He's trying to tell those young men, here are the people that you really should be looking up to. Um, And for years and years, football is dominated by that kind of elite vision. Um, And then, of course... Slowly over time, it morphs into uh, a more universal game, although it remains a bastion of maleness. And racial segregation um, is a fact in the game uh, in a very hard way until uh, the uh, 1940s and then Thereafter, for several decades, there were racial quotas in place that limited the number of black players on teams. It wasn't until 1983 that the NFL's labor force of players is majority black. Um, but the game is getting, has been moving in a direction of becoming uh, more, there's more representation from people of color. Um, from the 1980s on, we see a, a pretty, pretty steady upward trajectory a few plateaus but again it seems like the future of the game is moving in that direction as well um so yeah it's been imbricated from the very beginning um baked into the game as it was and um and is and has shaped the way that the game has been played ever since and who gets to play and under what circumstances and what it means to play
0: Yeah, that's that's brilliant, and I mean, and so it's it's particularly fascinating because one of the defining features, like I would say, and Derek and I write about this, of of the kind of landscape of um, really high performance, high revenue, which is to say, like the NFL and the Power Five conferences, or the soon to be something else, Power Four conferences. Who who knows? (laughs) Power Uh, two. Power two. Yeah, that's right. Um, But where where the revenue is is the point where the where the primary revenue is being produced. Right? these are really shaped by forces of racial capitalism today, right? And one of the things, again, that Derek and I talk about is the way in which a kind of structural coercion is at play, in which we see these broader dynamics of racial capitalism pushing racialized athletes into this game, which is now really understood as deep because of, and we'll get to this more later, but because of, you know, more health information that we have, we can understand just how sacrificial the game is, and yet, at the same time, because of how systematically Opportunities continue to be just um, continue to be denied in this putatively post-racial, but again, we're, that idea is losing a lot of its currency anyway. Society, uh-huh. right? We can see that there's plenty of reason for people to pursue opportunity through football, starting at university and going um, into the pros. What other opportunities are denied, and that this really has cut across racial lines in a very significant way, and yet the ways in which race has been kind of, um, Ideas about race have been produced in the world of football, right, um, have been the furthest thing from post-racial. We know that there's this huge history of racial stacking, right? This idea mm-hmm. that players of a position, like supposedly, you know, and we, we put race in quotation because we understand race to be a social construction, but obviously one that has right. a f- profound impact in these spaces, such that ideas about blackness associated with physicality, aggression, and so forth have meant that black players, and, and this is work that Lou Moore has done, right? Lou Moore has a new book coming out about this, but Lou Moore's focusing on the fact that the black black quarterbacks, right, historically were denied opportunity. There was not space in the game for black quarterbacks because that position was perceived to be a position, like a, so, a so-called intellectual position that white players had to play. And obviously, we we're finally, thankfully, seeing that change because that was a, a racial myth. It was a lie. And in fact, black athletes excel sell at that position, just like anyone, Excels at that position. But obviously those those kinds of norms that have existed within football, given the popularity of football, surely have had a profound impact just on broader understandings of race.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I and I think that's why ultimately football matters as an intellectual topic. I mean, it's important to care about the well-being of players. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a bit. But um, But, you know, the the significance of football is that it extends well beyond this sort of group of people who attend the games um, in person and and play it. And that's the tens of millions of people who are raised with it. um, And, and, you know, this has all gotten very sophisticated. Nickelodeon now runs a kind of... um, broadcast of NFL games with all kinds of graphics. Uh makes my skin um, crawl.
0: Absolutely makes my skin crawl. I hate it so much. Yeah. It's
1: <laughs> super creepy.
0: <laughs>
1: but um but the goal obviously is to find the next generation of potential NFL fans and to uh meet them where they are and to connect with them in a way that gets their interest going about about the NFL, and of course, what they're going to be imbibing is not just you know standings and analysis and game footage, but also ideas about race and about gender um, that are playing out on this really pronounced, huge stage. You know, I mean, um, you, you you can't really live in the United States today and think that football doesn't matter. I mean, football obviously matters. It is, uh, it is just s- such a enormous cultural influence um and pervasive uh in a way that i mean one of the things that I sort of learned through writing the book a lot of academics uh are um pretty annoyed at its pervasiveness i mean um right and not just academics but um and and a lot of people who study it are all for different reasons are also kind of annoyed by its yes. by its pervasiveness yes. <laughs> but um but uh yeah it is it's unavoidable, and that is what makes it so powerful. um the fact that you know a hundred million people, definitely a hundred million, maybe up to a hundred and twenty, maybe even a hundred and thirty million of people watched the Super Bowl uh last night, and um you know, there's a kind of narrative that got spun out around that game even before it started, um and then the game itself um and a lot of the features of that narrative are about um, describing and uh, valorizing certain kinds of male behavior, certain kinds of certain ways of being a man, um, denigrating other kinds of identities in uh, subtle and rather obvious ways. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I, I think about Taylor Swift <laughs> in particular, right, and the. uh, the complaints by many people about um her presence on their tv screens and um someone pointed out you know quite a few people have pointed out that you know there have been people whose job it is to perform on the sidelines and get the eye of the television cameras for the edification of the you know what was assumed at in those days to be a mostly male audience i'm talking of course about cheerleaders here so um what exactly is so Uh, upsetting about that presence. I I think it's really telling that, um, just, you know, Taylor Swift following her boyfriend and living her life is, (laughs) uh, upsets. A lot of people, yeah, in, uh, in a pretty yeah. profound, so way. so
0: objectionable, right? <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I okay. So I have two follow-up <laughs> questions actually to what you've been we've been talking about here, and we're gonna we're gonna circle back to this Taylor Swift piece in just a moment. Um, but just to, to kind of to finish this this point about race, right? One of the things you have really written about specifically um, is the NFL draft and how the NFL draft really? serves as a kind of spectacle, a site in which gender, race, and class are represented and understood, and in particular how the athletic male body has been represented through the draft in ways that invoke aspects of hegemonic masculinity and the ways in which men are supposed to be successful through the use of violence and how through the development of quantification by largely white team, maybe exclusively white team owners, and of course, predominantly white managers, in the evaluation of mainly non-white players... That the sort of the the logics of the draft then reinscribe power power hierarchies around race and class. Can you just talk a little bit about how the NFL draft and practices of so-called scouting uh, reinforce the racialized organization of the NFL?
1: Yeah. Shout out to Victor Ray, my colleague here at Iowa. uh, Yeah, huge. Always a shout out to Victor
0: Ray. Yeah, we love Victor Ray. Racialized
1: organizations. Um, Yeah, the draft got my attention. As a graduate student, uh, in part, I wasn't. I'm not. I wasn't at the time either. I mean, a lot of my proclivities and consumption habits as a a sports fan have changed over time, especially um, as a result of study. But, um, but at the time. Uh, I was not very much of a of an NFL fan either but of course I was aware of it as I mentioned earlier it is pervasive and impossible to avoid and one of the things that I noticed that was sort of uh strange to my way of thinking was this uh was this coverage of the NFL draft which was really exploding at the time this is around you know the late 90s early 2000s and um so the draft won't happen until the middle to the end of April I think it's April 25th or 27th or something this year. Um but for months leading like from the end of the Super Bowl to the beginning of the draft it dominates a lot of media coverage around sports and especially football. Um there are whole magazines, I mean dozens of magazines produced um uh online and in the more conventional forms, the more traditional forms I guess I should say now. Um that provide an analysis of every player who might be drafted in the, in the draft. And we're talking about hundreds of players. I mean, maybe 500 players and they'll talk about not just their height and weight and um, so on, but also their, um, their speed uh, always measured in uh, 40 yard bursts. Um, their ability, their strength, which is always measured by how many reps they can do of a 220 pound bench press, um, or other features that, you know, might, um, pertain to football success. But they also spend a lot of time talking about things that don't don't have a lot of obvious, um, connection to football success. This is supposedly like the sort of cold objective analytical process, but embedded in that language is all kinds of things like talking about somebody being tight skinned or looking the part, um, by which they mean he's muscular, right? His muscles are very visible and you can see them. It's like, well, who cares? Like (laughs) that doesn't have anything to do with football (laughs) performance. You know I mean? We already know whether he's, whether this prospect is strong or fast or whatever, why do we need to know about what they look like? Um, and the more I thought about it and the more I read about it, um, and, reading in other areas as well. I started to see some parallels with looking practices and descriptive practices and pleasures that, um, men would take in other kinds of marketplaces. And, um, to be really clear, um, I'm not comparing NFL players to enslaved people, but, um, the looking practices that surrounded the slave auction block, um, were had a lot of similarity with the ways in which players in the NFL were being described in these draft previews. Um, which was something I just found like really difficult to grapple with. Like what 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 could account for that? Um uh and you know the other thing that really got my attention about the draft is why is it so popular? It is uh it's basically a committee meeting. There's no at live athletic performance at the draft. It's just teams selecting the draft rights, the contract rights to eligible players in a given order. And by the way, we should just mention that the the whole reason for the draft is to control wages uh, for incoming players uh, because it creates a system in which a pl- incoming player can only negotiate with one team at a time. Um but the draft is you know become this alternative form of entertainment it's a, it it draws tens of millions of viewers it's actually the um it's going to be broadcast on the NFL network and ESPN so it's one of the very few events that is actually simulcast on two different networks um and at the same network um and uh so for that reason it was it was intriguing to me but But yeah, I've written about the uh, enumeration, the way in which players are sort of reduced to a kind of draft score. Sometimes that's a single number, like out of 10, maybe somebody ranks as a 8.5 or something like that. Um, Or it could be an assembly, an assemblage of numbers um, meant to uh, to rank players against one another. Um, So what I started to see in the draft was uh, something that, of course, had a kind of pragmatic element to it. There's a reason that they were doing these things, but there was it was also in another way a kind of ceremony of power, as Michel Foucault might describe it. Um, it was a way of uh, indicating who's in charge and who's not in charge, and um, this is all done and over and over again in the draft process. So, very shortly, I think it might be. In, I wonder if it's happened already. Actually, there is a um, there's a sort of an all star game for college players who are eligible for the draft called the Senior Bowl. And before the Senior Bowl, for years and years, players would be stripped to their um, like boxer shorts or athletic shorts and paraded across a stage where hundreds of scouts would watch as and sort of evaluate their bodies and things. So some people may have seen the image of Tom Brady um who has kind of a dad bod coming out of college um <laughs> and of course went on to become you know a legendary NFL player um but uh uh you know so this sort of inspection of of bodies is happening in a very uh kind of weird it was it seemed weird to me <laughs> that this was happening um so yeah that whole process really fascinates me i think that that um Um, there's a lot going on there. Uh, as I said, that is obviously there's a utilitarian aspect to it, but there is something else going on there too. And it's that something else that really caught my attention and I wanted to try to understand better.
0: Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. And it is a very disturbing scene. It's one of those things like as a sports fan becomes normalized, you know, because you spend a if li- mm-hmm. you spend a lifetime kind of watching that and you're like, oh yeah, it's just the draft. But when you sort of step back mm-hmm. from it or have any kind of defamiliarized perspective, um, yeah, it's it's quite striking what's what's going mm-hmm. on there. Now And really dehumanizing. And really de- that's and that's that's the right word for it. Really dehuman profoundly dehumanizing. Absolutely. Now, in the book, you also refer to a crisis of masculinity and really whiteness in the first mm-hmm. decades of the 21st century. Um, so, the question I want to ask now is, and it's you know just a multi-part question, but. Are we still experiencing such a crisis, first of all, a crisis of masculinity and whiteness? And does it account to some degree for the rather hysterical reaction, really, of many football fans to this (laughs) season of Taylor Swift, which you were talking about before? Or, and I (laughs) want to even complicate it, or in a way, does Taylor Swift, as Frankie de la Creta explained in a recent episode, we just had an episode about the Swifty Bowl, and we were talking about this at length, and Frankie explained does it in a way help the NFL actually reconsolidate a particular kind of all-American which is to say like white heteronormative masculine image uh-huh
1: uh-huh hmm the um so the the part about the crisis of masculinity first i think um one of the things that's um Interesting, I think, and it has been remarked on a number of times by a number of different people about the cultural politics of masculinity and whiteness, which are sometimes that that part is sometimes unspoken. So thank you for speaking it out loud. So I think I'll start. Uh, by addressing the question of the crisis of masculinity, which um, is a kind of confusing term because it pops up so often in cultural analysis um, and has so many different points. And I mean, it's something that many people have noted um, that masculinity, white masculinity, that is the sort of um, identity that most closely aligns with the articulation and exercise of power in the United States is sort of always in a state of crisis in the sense that it is always being challenged uh, and it's always reconstituting itself in some way. It's always quite keen to identify um, potential challenges um, and to try to create um, creative ways of addressing those challenges, especially in a commercial landscape in ways that can generate engagement and profit. And one of the things that I think is so compelling uh, to, you know, CBS or Fox or whoever happens to be broadcasting a playoff game where Taylor Swift might be present is that she is a kind of floating signifier and can be filled with lots of different meanings. Um, So she drives engagement, but, and, and for many people, it will be because there's something kind of. I mean, I think this is just a, a broad feature of Taylor Swift's career. There's something that to many people seems very comforting about uh, her celebrity that um, she has particular. She has communicated particular qualities that resonate with audiences, um, particularly white audiences, particularly middle class white audiences. Um, Uh, that, uh, you know, create a, create a feeling of affinity for her. There are a lot of people who are, have a very different view of Taylor Swift and is, are, are quite agitated by her, quite angry by her, but you know, television executives don't care why you're watching. (laughs) They care that you're watching. So if you are engaged in hate watching while well, you're still driving the sort of driving the industry that's how the that's how they make their money. So, um, you know, and it's now of course there's many many positions in between, you know, loving Taylor Swift and despising Taylor Swift, but there's many different ways in to engagement with the Taylor Swift story and that I think is part of why it's so ubiquitous. It's just uh it's a cash cow. Um, and it's, uh, impossible to get away from because, uh, you know, you can find a community of people who who maybe think the way you do about, about Taylor Swift. Uh, and then you can gather around the television set and love on her or hate on her or have a sort of nuanced, complex take that you share with people. It is, uh. It's just fun to engage with the question because now so many people also have such a range of she's such a polarizing figure. That in itself is just sort of kind of weird <laughs> and a, a sign of the strange political times that we're in. But uh in another way, kind of kind of predictable. Um uh but in this multifaceted way, I think that is just so uh that drives engagement in a way that it's just so Profitable.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And in a way, I'm thinking, if we're talking about kind of like going back to this idea of a crisis of masculinity, in the time since you wrote your book, what that has almost morphed into is that – and I, and I, this is all in scare quotes, right? Like just one of those things. It's like when you're right. in front of people and there's a video, it's a little bit easier to signify this. But I want to make yeah. crystal clear that the signal, those signifiers are all there. We have a supposed crisis with respect to gender now, right? I mean, like you mm-hmm. talked about Chris Rufo and one of our moral mm-hmm. panics of the moment, one mm-hmm. critical race theory, and Victor Ray, as you mentioned, has been all over that. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book on critical mm-hmm. race theory. But we also have this crisis around gender, supposed crisis around gender, and that has manifested in sport, really with this 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 um, moral panic about trans participation in sports, which has become uh-huh. one of the really leading edges of of the kind of maga politics that are challenging the hegemony of neoliberalism, as we were talking about earlier, and so. In a way, that is partly a crisis of masculinity, right? Because what what that means is that this so-called struggle over gender is about a re-entrenchment of the dominant sex-gender system. Um, Mm -hmm. And so masculinity is part of that, and femininity is part of that. And it does seem to me that there's a way in which this sort of um, Travis-Kelsey-Taylor Swift (laughs) pairing, Mm -hmm. right, it Mm re-entrenches in... In a particular way. But what's also fascinating is, are the forms of contention. And we were talking about this, I was talking about this with Frankie, because on the one hand, it's like, it seems like, oh, this is the quote unquote, all American heteronormative couple that embodies Uh. whiteness. And yet, it's being pushed in all directions. It's being pushed on the right by the MAGA movement who views Travis Kelsey actually as like a less than masculine man, right? Because he's supposed to be like this Mm. Pfizer representative. He represents like liberal (laughs) masculinity, which is actually supposed to be, Mm -hmm. you know, demasculinized in some way. And then Mm -hmm. at the the same time, we also have Taylor Swift, who has a history of um, representation around queerness. So that Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. is often read as a really very important queer figure and someone whose own sexual orientation identity has been viewed as a complex signifier at the very least. So very far from, in other words, a traditional emblem of femininity. Um, Right. So there's like all these ways in which you can kind of see this pairing and this moment as, um, I don't know, like the the kind of the terrain for all of this struggle Mm -hmm. over the meaning of gender in the United States.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to imagine, let's say, um, you know, the, there are other players who are uh, married to famous people. So uh, Simone Biles is married to Jonathan Owens, who plays in the NFL. It's kind of hard yes. to imagine the Packers being in the Super Bowl and, the, and Simone Biles getting quite as much coverage as Taylor Swift. Now, I mean, Taylor Swift is this sort of enormous megastar. But, of course, the, one of the questions is, why is that the case? Right. What, what, what made that possible? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. And, and I mean, one of the things that has really sort of, um, caught my attention about and, and lots of other people's attention about the current political moment is how, how something that seems very uncontroversial at first will generate controversy like so quickly and it's kind of dizzying and a lot of times I can't understand, you know, how this could even be controversial, but then, you know, that, that is part of the war of position. That's about trying to create, um, more space for the kind of change that people want to see. And, then, you know, I think that especially on the right, there's a lot of people very, uh, very well organized and who are taking culture really seriously. I think it was um, Andrew Breitbart who, you know, uh, used to say that culture is um, downstream or uh, politics is downstream of culture, which is a kind of echo of things that cultural studies scholars have been ri- writing in the 1970s and eighties. Um, so they, there are there are political operatives out there who really take these things seriously and 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 are looking for ways to leverage um, uh, popular culture in ways that can help drive their political aims and uh, it's just kind of I mean sometimes the 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 topics that they choose are seem so bonkers to me but um, but as you as you mentioned I mean it's so rich and and so many layers so interesting. This is the kind of thing that, you know, I am always trying to convey to students about, you know, this engagement with sports, because a lot of them can be a little wary that, you know, it might change their engagement and, you know, it might, but it is also Mm -hmm. just so interesting. It's just, it's, it's a really fascinating intellectual topic because it is such an important cultural battleground.
0: Yes. No, I couldn't agree more. Beautifully said now to further tease out then one of the key issues related to masculinity in football that we should be considering. And then, then we're going to get to that, that health piece, which we, we gestured to earlier. We got to consider the question of intimate partner violence or IPV. So Mm -hmm. Varda Burstyn argued in her book, The Rights of Men, which is a really, I think, excellent intervention from 1999, Mm -hmm. that IPV is almost endemic to football, which socializes a logic of what she calls coercive entitlement, precisely because Mm -hmm. the domination and aggression demanded by the sport simply can't be shut off when players leave the field. Would you agree with that appraisal? Is it possible for a violent sport like football not to leak off the field?
1: Hmm. I, mean, I don't know if it's possible for it not to leak off. I can certainly see how the sort of um, lessons that people learn through football. And just to go back to Walter Camp, right? This is there from the beginning. Walter Camp was not creating a game that he thought people could just play for fun. He thought it was going to be a, a form of pedagogy. Um, so what kinds of things do people, the question then becomes, what kinds of things do people learn from football? And as you and Varda burst in, point out, it is um, a lot of problematic, toxic forms of masculine behavior. Um, and it's, it's easy to see how that could leak off the field. Um, there was a journalist named Jeff Benedict who had a sort of interesting um, arc on this question. He um, he wrote a couple books about um, criminality and violent crime among um, football players. Um, one of them was called "Pros and Cons: Criminals Who Play in the NFL," and it was uh, that was around 1998. And then I think it was a year or two later he conducted a a a kind of survey because someone challenged him to say like well really is intimate partner violence in the nfl out of step with the general population and he and his um and this is you know 25 years ago i don't know what the you you would definitely know the figures better than i would now but what he found at the time was that actually the rate of violent crimes and especially especially uh sexual assault was higher in the general population than it was among uh, NFL players, um, which is uh, really alarming in another way. And I don't think that it um, discounts the question at all, because I think it, it um, just it slightly reframes the question. You know, because we live in a culture where football is ubiquitous. You don't have to play football in high school although millions and millions and millions of people do <laughs> to be clear but you don't have to to learn those lessons very very thoroughly um so uh to me the the really alarming thing would be that the sort of toxic forms of masculinity that football players might learn in a team setting are much more general and communicated to a much wider public in a way that uh, demands a lot of careful thinking about, like, how is how are these messages getting out there, and and um, what kind of damage are they doing to men, but also, of course, to the victims of inter- intimate partner violence, which is, uh, I mean, a kind of a the scale of the problem just sort of in the general population is kind of terrifying. I mean, it is, uh, um, very hard to, uh, to, um, and uh, especially when we think about, um, sort of, uh, some emergent movements with Andrew Tate, people like that, Um, uh, sort of new forms of toxic masculinity, which are not novel in a lot of ways, but they're put together in sort of new ways to make uh, a new kind of appeal to a new generation, seems to be really resonating with a lot of people. And I find that really, really disturbing. Uh, And of course, Andrew Tate himself is a former athlete who engaged in combat sports. But the again, the idea is that he... Spews in public uh, have much wider uptake than just among the people who are who are fighters.
0: Totally, and honestly, that's where I feel like this kind of conjunctural analysis is especially important. Because then there's the question becomes, you know. Why is why are those kinds of ideas so appealing in a moment like yeah. this, right? And that's I think what yeah. you're getting out the side of this idea of a crisis of masculinity, because it's it's not that there's some kind of transhistorical or essentialist appeal to those forms of masculinity. Quite the contrary, I would say. So there's something right. missing, right? Or there's some kind of precarious, and that's that's what I would lean to, right? There's some kind of sense of fundamental precarity that people are experiencing yep. that makes something that seems so sort of simple. And visceral, um, in terms of identity, maybe can hold appeal when people feel it's like because that kind of masculinity seems to be all about control and domination, right? And so it's right. like, well, who, who wants that? People who feel an utter lack of control, right, and who feel disempowered mm-hmm. by the kind of political economic conditions that they're living in, uh, and that's where it seems to really connect with me. Like we we, we live in this bizarre world where. People are often told through mainstream media, the economy is thriving, right? The economy is doing well, mm-hmm. the line's going mm-hmm. up, right? And then it, it has no bearing on people's lives, right? Because mm-hmm. what actually is happening is the cost of living is rising in this right. un, unfathomable way, such that housing eats up an ever larger share of people's income. We have greedflation driving up food costs, right? Like cost, cost, costs. It becomes very difficult, but there isn't even a language for it. Right? right? So it's like a, almost like a healthier way in a Marxian frame, a healthier way of contesting this would be to direct it in that political economic sphere, right? To say like, look how capital Uh is dehumanizing, alienating, exploiting, right? And then there's like a a kind of a one-to-one relationship there and your your activism or engagement can be directed at its cause. But because, especially in the United States, there's almost no language for that, right? I mean, we certainly have seen younger people have adopted more of that language. And I'm really excited by the ways in which that's happening. Don't get me wrong. Uh Like with Gen Uh Z and among, among students, you know, when we talk about Marx in the classroom, it's really different than it was even 15 years ago. So I, I'm really like, I don't want to dismiss that, but nonetheless, there isn't a lot of mainstream space for it. And so I think that there, uh-huh. that displacements like towards a toxic masculinity kind of follow logically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the language of, you know, um, blaming women and people of color for feeling disempowered that, that, that by contrast. There is a huge vocabulary for that, right? So there is you know, like, excellent a, point.
0: Yes, exactly. There's there's great, well said. Yeah, dozens
1: and dozens of narratives that are easy to tap into and adapt, and um, you know, uh, riff on in ways that might attract the attention of of, of people to your movement. But the um, you know, one thing I try to remind myself when uh, I witness something that Andrew Tate has said or something similar is that this is a reaction to the fact that there is resistance. That's the reason why it's there is that people are resisting. And, um, that is, that is hopeful, right? That (laughs) the backlash culture is pretty intense, but it is also the product of a lot of hard work by people of goodwill who are trying to make the world a better place. And so, um, the reason why it's so virulent and so uh pronounced is that that challenge has made an impact and that's a hopeful thing i think
0: yeah no that's excellent point excellent point um and what one might do in in a moment like this is to say okay like let's 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 look to the positive then um but that's (laughs) not me (laughs) So what I'm going to do is I'm going to double down on the negative and come to one of the more extreme um, negative questions, which is if we're going to talk about football, we need to engage with what I see as really the existential question. We've been talking for just about an hour and we haven't got to that existential question really yet. But that is that head injury cannot be separated from this sport in its current iteration. A very recent JAMA Network open study found that, quote, in a cohort study of 205 adolescent football players and 70 non-contact control athletes... Adolescent football players showed signs of altered brain structures, including cortical thinning and changes in brain folding. Also, football players showed lower brain signaling and coherence in frontal and medial parts of the brain, but increased signaling and coherence were observed in the occipital lobe. These findings suggest playing football may be associated with a different trajectory. Trajectory of cortical maturations and aging processes, and many affected brain regions are associated with, me- with mental well being. Now, this, of course, is on top of Boston University's findings that every 2.6 years of participation in football doubles the chances of contracting the degenerative brain condition chronic traumatic encephalopathy CTE. This would seem to raise some questions about children's participation in the sport, and yet recently when the California legislature brought forth a bill in January to ban tackle football for kids under 12, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom promised he would veto the bill. Apparently because of concerns it has been pro- politicized as a proxy for parental rights, the very same parental rights discourse that has militated against the participation of trans kids in sports. Which is to say that apparently banning trans kids and sacrificing all kids to football are part of precisely the same abusive project in American political discourse today. Now, finally, just to connect even another couple sets of dots here, I would also note that ESPN recently published a story arguing that, quote, the narrative about CTE has outpaced science end quote, essentially suggesting that concerns about head injury in football are something of a moral panic. I note that the three medical sources upon which the story relies all have conflict of interest with respect to NFL ties, and that we have recently learned the NFL may be on the verge of buying a share of ESPN. Finally, we also know that at the end of January, the Washington Post published a story Discussing how in the NFL's concussion settlement, it turns out that this medical standard of dementia being applied in that settlement is significantly higher than the standard for a general Mm -hmm. diagnosis of dementia among among the population at large. And this has meant that over half of all claims have been denied. And even that some 300-plus claims that were brought forth using doctors approved of by the concussion settlement. So the concussion settlement's own experts said these folks had dementia, and those claims were still denied. And the denied claims would total something like $700 million of savings for the NFL. So, I mean, I'm just trying to throw a lot of things here. But what what I want to get at is... And and this is a classic academic. This is more of a comment than a question, really. <laughs> but the simple question is: Is football a morally sustainable enterprise for kids, for anyone?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I have been so troubled by the uh, the the way in which the league has responded to the revelations about connecting football to CTE, it was, um, I, I read that same post report that you mentioned about the sort of denial of not just payouts to former players, but also treatment to people who were suffering, um, as a result of these, um, criteria that they had which as you mentioned were much higher than the the sort of general standard of dementia and confused many many doctors who are like why why am i being asked to use this standard instead um i think the nfl in particular is um uh it's difficult to justify it's um, from from my point of view it's impossible to justify um their behavior with respect to CTE. they have, of course, responded to it. Their response has been mostly to try to protect their interests by um, satisfying people into the idea that the league is doing everything that it can do to protect the interests of players. Um, and also to now, it seems, maybe open this new front and saying that, well, you know, maybe uh the whole cte thing has been overblown which was their initial strategy <laughs> we might mention um as documented in league of denial which is a really uh outstanding work of investigative sports journalism available as a book and a documentary online i encourage everyone to check it out if they haven't haven't already um, so you know the NFL is deeply invested in, as I mentioned, growing its profits still further, um, and they see CTE clearly as a kind of threat to their profit um, first and foremost, rather than as a moral obligation, right to their uh, to their labor force. One of the things that really interests me about um, about contemporary football is the way in which it's getting taken up, um, in these, uh, new ways. So at the, I think it's at the Olympic games this year, there's going to be, um, um, well, is it going to be at this one? Let me make sure. Um, there's going to be uh, flag football. Um, and of course the, the pro bowl has been, uh, changed to, um, uh, to include a sort of flag football, uh, competition. And watching those competitions, i got to say, that is pretty compelling television. It is really interesting to watch. Uh, It's fast. It's really fast-paced, especially compared to an NFL game. The one yesterday took, I think, almost five hours. Um, So um, it's fast-moving. There's a lot that people already like about football um, that's there. But, of course, there's a lot absent um, that people consider to be absolutely fundamental to the game. And that's, you know, the big hits and even the little hits. I mean, one of the things that I think should be really concerning about, um, some of the uh, emerging science on CTE is the suggestion that it might be sub concussive hits rather than just concussive yes. hits that contribute to, um, you know, the development of that ailment. And, uh, that, that's just in the current, structure of the game you can't get away from sub concussive hits that's just that's just on every single play there's a that's subconcussive right. hit so so um you know can the game be can the game adapt and evolve i don't think there's an economic incentive for the nfl to do that um <laughs> they're you know busy pursuing their 25 million dollar revenue or 25 billion dollar revenue goal so they're not really interested in changing that. Um, could change come from somewhere else? Uh, that's hard to see too, because, <laughs> um, because there's just so much money in football and it's so consolidated in the hands of very few people who don't seem very interested in protecting the health of, uh, players in, in any way other than as a PR exercise to make this problem go away. Um, so yeah, I find it really troubling. I try to really when I talk about this with students, I try to help them understand that there's nothing inevitable. Even though football is this, you know, cultural and e- economic behemoth now, that's not a guarantee that it's going to be that way in 20 or 30 or 40 years. Um boxing was once the, you know, sort of uh, most popular Sport, both to watch, and lots of people participated in boxing. Uh, th- there were boxing teams on college campuses. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was on his boxing team at at uh, Harvard in his pursuit of the strenuous life. But um, you don't see boxing teams at colleges anymore, <laughs> and and you barely see yeah. boxing anymore. But Bo- boxing is, is has not gone away. It's still you know a lucrative sport, but it's 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 far far diminished it's much diminished in its place in the in the culture so these things can change and it's really important that you know i think we all recognize that that there's nothing inevitable about football's um you know future although it's formidable <laughs> yeah <laughs> the forces holding football in place in the way that it is now in this sort of toxic dangerous way there's a lot of power behind those forces. Um, but it's not inevitable. So I I, yeah. I, I do think that law lawsuits might be one of the ways in which this, this changes. Um, so parents of children who, you know, um, uh, who have been lost to um, those children choosing death often as a result of brain injuries, Sustained from football, I mean, that is that's that potentially a huge liability issue for uh, schools who are organizing these activities, <laughs> making it possible yeah. for people to do these things. So so that might be one of the levers that might bring some change. But what that change will look like and what the resistance to it might look like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It's uh, hard to see much we'll changing in the immediate future
0: i have to say i mean look that's interesting two things one you did make me feel surprisingly hopeful there with that analogy to boxing um because you're right you're absolutely right about the fate of boxing and honestly the fate of boxing has come for very similar reasons right so it does speak to um kind of possibility there and i I think you rightfully um position that against what the obstacle is which is You know, capital, essentially. Um, But you also, you know, you you brought up the last thing I wanted to conclude with anyway, which is this question of schools, right? And this weird way in which we have sites of putative development, um, education, and so forth that are that have married themselves to something that can, I think, only be understood as like profoundly debilitating for the people who participate. So very fundamentally antithetical, in other words, to the mission of the institutions we're talking about. Right. And so in, in terms of you're right, there's a, there's a legal side to it, which is that like, it should be very easy to establish a kind of liability there when parents should be are sending their children and young adults and adults to these places, these institutions, for something that's exactly the opposite of what football provides, right? And they have good reason to be aghast at harm that that ensues. So that's one aspect, the legal aspect. And then there's like the fundamental kind of moral question, right, about um, what we're doing. And of course, the moral questions are always – Drowned by uh, capital questions. That's that's. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. But but I want to ask you, not in a judgmental way, but I think because Mm -hmm. for almost all of our listeners, this is a real question that people have to navigate. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask Mm -hmm. you about how you personally negotiate this sort of rather tricky moral entanglement of football and the university which is to say the mm-hmm. investment of the institution itself, right? And you're at a place like Iowa, a Big Ten school, which makes mm-hmm. a lot of money from the sport, like many of mm-hmm. us are. Uh, I was at Duke. Um, so we're talking about you know the investment of the institution, the exploitation and endangerment of the very students you are tasked with educating and developing. Right. And, and actually at Iowa, right, we've seen specifically uh, – oh, woefully underpublicized racism scandal in its football program, mm-hmm. which has been a subject of lawsuits of its own. So these mm-hmm. are all difficult dynamics that we find ourselves in. How do you process and manage them?
1: Yeah, it is, I mean, I should mention also just really briefly that there was also a Title IX investigation um, at Iowa as a result of the treatment of some um women coaches in the athletic department by the athletic director and th- the former athletic director. And, um, <laughs> there was a, you know, investigation and some of us wondered if they were going to get a tour of the, of the visitor's locker room at Kinnick stadium, which is painted pink because the, um, former head coach Hayden Fry, uh, believe that it was a pacifying color and would make the opponents um, uh, less um, exuberant in their pursuit of victory um, I don't know if they actually went in or not but like there's just so many local yeah. examples around uh, around just this one institution that I can point to for students to think about some of these issues and um, but the most important thing I think and the and one of the hardest things for Uh, for educators is when you're working at an institution like Iowa, which is in the Big Ten, which has, uh, you know, there are no major league professional sports in Iowa, so the Hawkeyes are kind of like one of the major league sports here. So um, really devoted fans, a lot of people, you know, traveling hours on Friday to spend the night and tailgate all day Saturday and drive back on on Saturday evening. So people really invested in this place. And, and uh, many of my students come to Iowa, you know, this is the only place they ever wanted to go. It was like from the earliest moment that they were aware that there was such a thing as colleges and universities that was communicated to them through watching football on a Saturday afternoon. And so their idea about what a university is and what, or at least what this university is, is so deeply connected to college sports and to football, that I think it's so important to help these students understand how weird and unusual that is. Um, That, you know, if we were at universities in Europe or Asia, we would not have giant varsity, you know, programs vying to compete, uh, you know, at a multi-billion dollar stadium (laughs) in front of hundreds of you know, or tens of millions of viewers, um, on television. That's just, this is a weird situation that we have here in the United States, a weird system. And so step one is getting students to understand that and to denaturalize that. But, um, it's a tricky balance because it also, you know, the the life of the university and the life of the athletic department and the big 10 are just, um you know that they're kind of one and the same in a lot of ways i mean big games get talked about before class and they're kind of unavoidable as class topics but i mean one of the things that i've been thankful for in a weird way is that um iowa does has produced so many of these um interesting uh, conundrums. Like we had the, the, there was the, uh, there was a truth and reconciliation commission that was produced after allegations of, um, racism, endemic racism in the program at the university of Iowa. Um, the head coach Kirk Ferentz quietly dis, uh, disassembled that committee and ended its work. Um, but it got tons of, you know, so like if I were at another institution, that example might fly under the radar, but here people know exactly what I'm talking about. The context is all there and it allows us to have these conversations that might not be possible other places. They're not the conversations that I think every, every one of those students wants to have about those topics, but it does allow us a, a way to get a platform to start thinking about, you know, what the, what the problems are, what the structures are that create those problems, how we might change those structures, um, how we might relate to sports in a different way. And this is something that, you know, I want students to know is that uh, sports, that there's a lot of problems in the world of sports. Of course, there's systemic abuse. There's Um, you know, there's death, there's uh, impoverishment, there's all kinds of terrible things happening. Um, And they have consequences, as we've talked today, for people, you know, not just the participants, but the audiences as well. But sports is also a realm of uh, invention and resistance and um, uh, liberation. And it's important to Remember those things as we, <laughs> as we are engaging with such uh, depressing topics. Sometimes I think you know, um, hope yes. is a resource and people need it. So,
0: well, Tom, on that note, I will I will leave you the last word there with on actually hopeful note, and I'm not going to turn it back to yet another uh, one of our conundrums <laughs> and problems. Uh, so, Tom, I'll thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.